St. James, it's really good to see you here this morning, and uh, welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream. If you could take a few minutes 
um, if you're here in person to, uh, at some point today to look through the announcements. Uh, everything is pretty much uh, normal this week schedule-wise. There's a couple of new announcements in here that I want you to check out. If you're at home watching on the live stream, check out the website for those announcements. Now, um, today, we're not going to have a youth confirmation or adult Bible study or evening prayer tonight. Normally, I mean, that's for Mother's Day. <clears throat> Normally, under normal circumstances, we're not going to cancel adult Bible study uh, because of Mother's Day. But because of the weird scheduling thing and because adult Bible study is at 1230 in the afternoon, and I realize that a lot of us want to uh, eat lunch with our mothers, uh, we are going to. But that brings up another point. We are, I want, I want, to, I want you to know that we are uh, thinking about getting back to a more normal schedule with a Bible study during the morning as well. Um, so we're pushing towards that end, and that will involve you guys. We're going to send you out a survey at some point here to figure out, so, so you can have your voice heard about what you want to see happen with schedules and stuff like that. So we'll send that out to you at some point. Uh, but as for today, everything is, uh, besides worship service, everything is um, going to be postponed until next Sunday. I think that's all the announcements that I have for you. Why don't you go ahead and stand, and we will pray, and then continue in worship. Let's pray. God, uh, you know how frail we are, and you know how prone to wonder we are, both intellectually, it's hard to keep our focus and our minds on you, and morally, our behavior and our speech and our thoughts uh, wander from your way so easily. And, and this morning, we want to know you better and to be closer to you, but that's only going to happen if you, as our good shepherd, uh, bring us behind you and keep us close to you and protect us and guard us from the wandering and the strain that we're so prone to. So this morning, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we're praying that you would come here and be with us and uh, make us your people and confirm to us again, again, and in, in new, fresh ways that you are our God and that you are here with us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. O Lord, great God, all-holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, we are embarrassed to come before You, for we have rebelled against Your wisdom and have gotten into trouble, for we have rejected Your fatherly guidance and have gotten lost altogether, and therefore we are embarrassed. To you belongs righteousness, O Lord, and to us confusion of face. O Lord, great God, all holy, Father most gracious, filled with mercy and steadfast love, incline your ear to our troubles. Hear us when we pour out our sorrows before you. Forgive us, not on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy, on the ground of your great mercy in the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. For He is our Savior and the Mediator of the covenant of grace. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear Him. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn. psalm comes from psalm 66 come and hear all you who fear god and i will tell you what he has done for my soul shout for joy to god all the earth sing the glory of his name give to him glorious praise bless our god O peoples let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living 
and has not let our feet slip. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. So the Acts reading is uh, from the story of Cornelius, who uh, uh, was a God-fearer and uh, uh, was praying to God, and God said to him, send for this guy named Peter. You don't know him, but send for this guy named Peter to come and talk to you. Cornelius was a Gentile. Peter simultaneously gets a vision from God where he's instructed to go to this Gentile's house. He's unclean, I know, God says. I'm telling you, though, that he is clean. Go into his house and preach the gospel to him. Peter's a little uncomfortable with this, but he goes and he speaks to Cornelius, and this is his sermon and the result. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 15. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
I know we, we haven't uh, sang that hymn a lot, but you'll, uh, when you hear the epistle reading, you'll realize why it is that we sang that this morning. Uh, this is from 1 John chapter 5, uh, following up from our reading last week. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever, whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. So parallel with the Gospel reading as well from John 15. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray here at the beginning of the sermon, because I'll just be honest with you, um, which you could probably guess from the last three verses of our reading. Uh, there's some uh, ideas in here that are not, John says things in a way that doesn't frequently get said throughout the rest of Scripture. So there are ideas that maybe we haven't thought about a lot. And I'm just, I'm hesitant because I'm a little bit uncomfortable explaining these because I'm nervous that I'm not going to be able to explain it well. So if you just give me five seconds to pray that God would give me clarity of thought and that would help us understand this text. Uh, God, be with us this morning as we um, think about and as I preach about um, your spirit and the water and the blood testifying to us of your reality, the reality of your son Jesus, and like help me be clear in my mind and articulate and understandable in my speech, and uh, help us all to get what's being said here, and most of all, Father, will you use your word to transform us into the likeness of your son Jesus? We need you to do this. It's got to be a work from you, and so we're praying that you would do this this morning. Uh, in your son Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so past three weeks, if you've been uh, listening the past three weeks, uh, you'll know that John gives us subjective test of our Christianity. And he says, here's how you know you're a Christian. These experiences will be yours if you're a Christian. And then he goes on to say, but that's not going to be quite good enough. Because anything that it's, it's, you know, when I say the word subjective, I don't mean untrue. Everything that you know you know subjectively and objectively, right? So geometry is an objective thing. There's facts out there, but you don't get it until you get it, until you make it a part of your understanding. Scripture is the same way. A relationship with God is the same way. There are subjective things about our relationship with God that are true, but if you turn your eyes off of God and look at yourself and say, you know, am I really good enough or believe enough or whatever, you'll falter. So you remember three weeks ago in 1 John 3, John gave us three tests. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you love the brothers and sisters? And do you have the Holy Spirit? Christians are people who believe in Jesus, love each other, and have the Holy Spirit. That's an experience that Christians have. It's a subjective experience. However, if you turn away from Christ and begin to examine those, you will inevitably say, well, what if I don't believe enough? Or what if... I don't really have true faith. 
Or what if I don't love my brothers and sisters like that? What if I don't really love them? What if there's some selfishness? Or what if what, if what I'm experiencing is not the Holy Spirit, but is something different? In that case, all three, all three of the texts that we're going to read, John comes in with an objective reality that says, forget your subjective experience. It is true, Christians experience these things, but do not look at them because there's something bigger than that. There is an objective reality outside of you coming to bear on your subjective experience. So three weeks ago, it's, Whenever your heart condemns you, whenever you look at your heart and you say, whenever you look at yourself and you say, I don't know if I believe in Jesus enough or if I love the brothers and sisters enough or if I really am living in the Holy Spirit, ignore your heart because God is greater than your heart. 1 John 3.20 says that. Remember last week he says, uh, do you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? That's what Christians do. But what if your confession isn't good enough? What if you didn't really mean it? Well, then he says, go to Christian community. Because God's love is perfected in the relationship that the Christian church has with each other. Do you want to know? Um, perfect love casts out fear. And, and what he means by that, do you remember from last week? Perfect love is the love of God embodied in Christian community. I know that I'm a believer because I'm living life with you guys and I experience the love of God through you. There's an objective reality that's not inside of here, it's outside of here. Well, he does the same thing today in 1 John 5, 1 through 8. There's a subjective experience that all Christians have. It's ultimately not good enough to give you assurance of faith. There's no personal test that you can give you to say, are my affections really pure towards God? It's always going to let you down. An objective reality is going to come in and say, there's something better than your subjective experience, as important as that is. And that is God's objective reality coming on top of you. So, first of all, the subjective experience. Um, verse 1. Uh, here's the first thing. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Christians, people who have been born of God, are people that believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first thing. Second thing, rest of verse 1, everybody, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Christians love the Father. Christians are people who love the brothers and sisters. These are the two subjective experiences in verse 1. Do you believe in Jesus do you love the brothers and sisters? This is nothing new. We've talked about that in 1 John 3. We talked about it in 1 John 4. John hammers this home. Confession that Jesus is the Messiah, loving brothers and sisters. He adds something else here, which isn't really an addition. Look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So obeying his commandments is the third thing. For this is the love of God, verse 3, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So I know it looks like there's three things. It looks like there's believe in Jesus, love each other, and keep his commandments. But if you remember from 1 John 4, it's not in your bulletin, but it's in, if, you, if you're looking at your Bibles right now, it's the last verse that we read last week, right before this one. Keeping his commandments is actually the first two. Um, if anyone's, oh, I'm sorry, uh, this is going back to 1 John 3, uh, verse 23. He says, and this is his commandment. So this is the commandment of God, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commands. So in John, the commandment of God is believe in Jesus and love each other. So these are the two things. Let's unpack these. I know I've done this the past couple of weeks. Let's do it one more time. These are the two subjective experiences, primary subjective experiences that make up what it means to be a Christian. One, do you confess that Jesus is the Messiah? This isn't just a cognitive confession. When we say that Jesus is the Messiah, in the Jewish worldview that John is working in, remember the Messiah is the one who's going to come and put everything to right. So by confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, you're confessing that you believe that Jesus is the only one who's going to put things to right. 
necessarily that means that all the other fake messiahs aren't going to work. We put our hope in the political system. The political system, democracy, um, any other sort of political system, the two political parties, they are not going to put things to right. Don't, I'm not saying don't be involved in those things. I'm just saying don't put your messianic hopes in them. Economic systems, capitalism, communism, and whatever's in between, not going to put things to right. I'm not saying it's not important. They just are unable to fix things. Could be some sort of philosophical system that you have. Most of us are, most of us have some sort of pleasure-based philosophical system. It could be like, whatever, making money or travel or family values or whatever it is that gives you pleasure. There's something inside of us that says, if I can just have this, if I can just have my family together, or if I can just have a little bit more money, or if I could just, if I, if I was just able to travel more, if I could just get out from underneath this mask and leave my home every once in a while, I would be happy. Like that would fix things. Uh, all those things are important. Fake messiahs. Jesus is the only one. When we confess that Jesus is the Messiah, what we're saying is that Jesus is the only one who has the power to fix everything. Okay. And second thing is, Christians love each other. This is the second part of uh, verse one, right? And what he says is, the way he phrases it here is, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Love for God necessarily leads to love for his other children, our brothers and sisters. And John's going to insist that if you're not experiencing love for the brothers and sisters, perhaps there's not a love for God that you have. It is not possible to say, I love God and not love the brothers and sisters. This is first John. This is the uh, last verse of last time. If anyone says, I love God, but doesn't love his brother, he's a liar. It's not possible. It's not possible to love God and not be in love with Christian community. Okay. This is just a law that he sort of pulls from nature, right? The, 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 you, you guys know this, that we've all had friends who have kids, and if you like the friends, but you end up not liking their kids, it's very hard to like build and maintain strengthening a relationship with them. It's possible, if your love for them is so strong, you can learn to love their kids. So Angela and I, we've, I, I easily think of multiple couples. The first one's nobody in this room, by the way. Like um, a couple that we were friends with, this is like right after we were married, who had kids that we just could not stand. And the kids were just super annoying. And part of that too is that we didn't have kids. And so it's easy to be annoyed at people who do have kids. And you're like, why don't they keep their kids in line? And, but that friendship languished. We just had a hard time hanging out with them. Not that we didn't like them, but our love for them dwindled because of our struggle with their kids. Sometimes there are friends that you love and you end up loving their kids for their sake. And you end up loving them. The more you love them, the more you love their kids. And the more you love their kids, the more you love them. That's what John is talking about. Our love for God is never, ever a personal internal thing. It's never dissociated from Christian community. We live out our love for God with love for each other. Now, that makes more sense of verse two, which is kind of a weird verse, all right? He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Let me tell you why it's weird. Because we're used to the notion of 1 John 4.20, which says, if you love God, how do you, know that you, uh, how do you know that you love God if you love his children, right? This is actually the, the reverse of this. 
how do you know that you love God's children? By loving God. That's what he says. Let me read it one more time. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do you know that you love each other enough? When we love God. Right? So it's this, it's this, it's, it's this almost circular, symbiotic idea of love for God is never individual. It's, it's always, it's never internal. I mean, I know that there's a part of your emotions and your thoughts, as a, for many of you are Christians, that loves God, right? But that's not what he means by God's love ever. It's not, what, it's not what John ever means by loving God. He means the love of God embodied in loving each other. And loving each other is never just about being friendly and nice and God wants us to get along, so let's be nice to each other. It is always me loving you and you loving me and us loving each other is always an act of worship. It's never just, I mean, of course, it's like we like each other and it's being friendly is good, but it's always a recognition that my bond with you is eternal and permanent. I have more in common with you than I do with people who have the exact same hobbies as me, but who don't also love God. It's an act of worship. Christian community is an act of worship. So loving God, loving each other, these two things, right? Um, and there's a result here. These are the two subjective experiences. There's a result here in these verses, and that is, if this is your experience, if you confess that Jesus is the Messiah and you love each other, then you have overcome the world. This is the result in verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, so if you're experiencing this, then you have overcome the world. You are, an, you are a victor. Somebody emailed me this past week and said, like, what should we do in a world that uh, is against us and opposed to us? Super good question. What they're looking for is like practical things to do. How do you live as a Christian in a world that doesn't understand you and that sometimes is opposed to you? And later on, we can talk about practical things to do. But one of the, the, the emotional foundation behind anything that we might do along those lines is, is that we have already overcome the world through our faith. And so the question is, like, what if my faith isn't strong enough to overcome the world? That's misunderstanding the point of faith. Faith isn't something that you do to overcome the world. Faith is saying, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus has overcome the world. After all, John himself says in John chapter 16, verse 33, says to his disciples, I've said all these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus says to his disciples, I've overcome the world. And now he's saying to us, if you have faith in me, if you're siding with me, if you've thrown your lot in, it doesn't, it doesn't mean like you just have this deep understanding and I'm like so committed to Jesus that's great if that's where you're at. But if all you are is just barely hanging on to Christ, if all you are is, like, I have no hope for, like, anything getting fixed except for I'm hoping that Jesus pulls these chestnuts out of the fire. If that's all you've got, then you have overcome the world because you have cast your lot in with Jesus the Messiah. All right. That's the subjective thing. Loving Jesus, believing in Jesus, and loving each other. If that's your experience, then you're a Christian. But of course, like the past two weeks, what if you're not sure? What if you're like, I don't know if I have enough faith? What if I don't, what if I don't really love the brothers and sisters? What do I do then? All right. We're about to get to some objective stuff where God's going to say, okay, forget that for a minute. 
and look at what I've done to put you into my family. And he's going to do it by talking about the water and the blood. And like I said, this is maybe a tad confusing. And so um, try to hang with me and give me, uh, it's hard to see with the masks on, but give me like an I'm not getting this look with your eyes if you're struggling. And I'll try and slow down and explain it better. Or if a push comes to shove, just get a hold of me later and we can talk about it. Verses 6 through 8, let me read this one more time. This is he, he's talking about Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. What does that mean? Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Okay, I've hesitated telling you this the past several weeks because it's not been that important to John's message. And um, it's something that none of us in our culture struggle with. So it just seemed like it was okay to leave it out, but now I've got to because he addresses it specifically. What he's addressing is an ancient heresy from about 50 years, 50, 60 years after Jesus was walking the earth called the Serinthian heresy. It's taught by a man named Serinthus who was one of St. John's opponents in Ephesians. Serinthus was a pseudo-Christian. He was a Christian pastor who taught a version of Christianity that's broadly called Gnosticism. So I realize for some of you this is going to be like, just please let me out of here, this is boring. But hang on for just a few minutes. Gnosticism is a Christian, also a Jewish heresy, which says this. Salvation is not God's rescuing the world. Like the world does not need forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Salvation is there's secret knowledge that only God has that he gives to his chosen ones. And if you can get that knowledge, you are one of the N people, right? Jesus did not come to suffer and die on a cross. That is so crass. That is physical and dirty, and God doesn't have anything to do with physical. In fact, God did not create the physical world. It was like a, a secondary deity called the Demiurge who made this physical world. That's a, your, your body's bad. God would never have a body. Instead, what happened was God sent Jesus down. God sent the Messiah down to give us this secret knowledge of him. And the way he did it was this. This is what Serenthus taught. When Jesus, Jesus was just a normal dude. Joseph and Mary were his mother, were his mother and father. And he was just a normal guy living life, good Jew. When he went out to get baptized by John, God sent the Messiah, who's a second person, separate from Jesus, down onto Jesus. And Jesus existed for the next three years as two people, a physical Jesus of Nazareth, the construction worker, and as the spiritual God, Messiah. God would never, ever die. That's way too dirty and physical. Right before Jesus was crucified, the Messiah left him to go back up to the Father. And Jesus, the man, was left hanging out to dry and was killed on the cross and then buried and his body decomposed. That's Serenthus' teaching. And now what John is saying here is, Serenthus, I agree with you that Jesus was the Messiah at his baptism, but I disagree with you that Jesus was not the Messiah at his death. I'm sorry, that's a long explanation and very, very boring if you're not interested in that sort of philosophical thing. But it's the only way to explain what he means here in verse 6, that Jesus Christ came not by the water only, 
but by the water and the blood. In other words, what John is saying is, is that Jesus came through his baptism. That was part of his mission here. And also Jesus came through the blood. You know what he means by came. He means same thing he meant last week. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That the mission of God to rescue the world is to send his Messiah in the flesh. Two key moments for John here. His baptism, where he was publicly recognized and announced vindicated by the Holy Spirit, announced by his Father from heaven that this is my son, my beloved son, and his death where he accomplished this mission. John is agreeing with Orthodox Christianity, and he's saying that Jesus Christ came both in his baptism, his public revelation, and in his death, the ultimate completion of his mission. The Spirit, he throws the Spirit in here too, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And the reason why he throws the Spirit in here is because the Spirit attests to both Jesus' baptism and to his death that these are God in flesh rescuing the world. You'll remember at Jesus' baptism, it's the Spirit that comes down upon him like a dove, showing the whole world that, yes, I'm anointing. God says, this is my anointed one. Not just anointed with oil. Not just merely anointed with water here at his baptism, but anointed with my Holy Spirit for this messianic mission. The Spirit also attests to Jesus' death. John tells his disciples, and uh, Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 17, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to explain to you basically everything that's going to happen in the next few days. It's going to be very confusing to you in the interim. It's at the, it's at the uh, Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes down, and what does he do? He takes, this, he takes Peter's message, which is essentially the message of the crucified Jesus. God sent his Messiah. You guys crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. What does the Holy Spirit do with that message of the crucified Jesus? Converts 3,000 people. It's the Holy Spirit who bears witnesses to Jesus, witness to Jesus' baptism and Jesus' resurrection. And for that reason, for John, the water and the blood are so important. John has this weird fascination with the water and the blood. The Gospel of John is filled with water imagery. Right? Jesus goes into Cana in John chapter 3. And what does he do? He turns water into wine. He tells the woman at the well in John chapter 4, I use water at this well. I'm sure it tastes great, refreshing, cool, whatever. I can give you living water that you'll never thirst again. In John chapter 7, he preaches a short sermon in which he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This water thing is super important. It's a super important theme for John. In fact, there's this really interesting thing at the end of John you remember this? You know how John several times, he does it in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says it. He does it in John chapter 20, where John says, I am writing, I am witnesses, witness to these things about the crucified and risen Jesus. I saw them, I know they're true, and I want you to believe in them. Whenever John, every once in a while, John will break the fourth wall and look out at his audience and say, hold on, I want you, I want you to hear this. I saw this happen, I know it's true. You should believe in this stuff. There's one other time when he does it. And for John, it's this water and blood thing. He says in John chapter 19, this is Jesus has been crucified on the cross. His body and the two criminals that he was, hang, was crucified with are hanging there. And John says this, since it was the day of preparation, so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, it was Passover Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So can we go out there, can we break their legs which would cause them to die faster so that we can take them down off the cross and get rid of their bodies so that their rotting carcasses aren't hanging up there on Passover Sabbath and polluting everything around the temple complex. Pilate says this is okay. 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs because they didn't need to. He was already dead. Instead, for whatever reason, because he just wanted to make sure or because a little bit sadistic, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And check out what John says. At once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, why does John break the fourth wall right then? Because for John, the blood and the water are key to knowing that Jesus is yours. The blood and the water function as witnesses to say, God is on your side. Don't look at your faith. Don't look at your love. Don't look at your affections. Don't look at how well or how badly you obey or disobey the commandments. Not that they're not important. John emphasizes that all Christians will experience these things. But don't take your eyes off of Jesus and look at yourself to examine yourself for those things. Instead, look at the blood and look at the water. The Spirit uses those as witnesses to prove to you that God is on your side. Now, how does this happen? Well, first of all, what's the main point of all this? What's the main point of all this? Objectivity, right? Because subjectively, your affections, your belief or lack of belief, it's flimsy. It comes and goes. Sometimes you really believe in Jesus, and sometimes you struggle with doubts. Sometimes you just really love God's people, and sometimes you just, just don't want any more of them. What we need is objectivity. We need something solid and tactile and physical. Ultimately, here's what it means. Ultimately, your connection with God is not based upon your faith. It's not based upon your love. It's not based upon your obedience. It's ultimately based upon concrete, verifiable, historical events. The Messiah was baptized. The Messiah was crucified and risen from the dead. That's locked into history. That's guaranteed. If those things are true, then you guys are in. Those of you who've confessed this faith are in. More than that, though, question we've got here, how do these historical events get to us? How does Jesus' baptism actually function as objective proof that I'm in? How does Jesus' death get from 2,000 years ago to prove that I'm good with God? Martin Luther, the reformers, both Martin Luther and John Calvin looked at this text here, and they said, water and blood, this is the sacraments. Right? Water is about Jesus' baptism, but more than that, it's about our baptism. Or I shouldn't say more than that. Flowing out of that, no pun intended, it's about our baptism. This blood is about Jesus' death, but also it's about our participation in receiving the benefits of Jesus' death in Holy Communion. How does this work? In Holy Communion, the Holy Spirit brings Christ's death back from 2,000 years ago. He does not offer him again. This is not a new sacrifice, but it brings the benefits of Christ's death. It brings Christ the benefits of Christ crucified and risen from 2,000 years ago here to us now completely and objectively. It's not accessed merely intellectually. So here's the problem is that some of us are like, it's just bread and wine. Like, that's like, that's kind of like childish, isn't it? Like, I mean, shouldn't we be looking for something more like, in, like intellectually stimulating? And I'll just say, watch out for the Gnostic heresy. Like salvation is not secret knowledge. You knowing Christ is not happening up here. You knowing Christ is happening up here, in here, and out here. It is objective. It is a reality that has come upon you. 
Here's the second thing. It's not crass. Experiencing the benefits of Christ's crucifixion, experiencing the benefits of Christ's blood and bread and wine physically is not somehow dirty. Watch out for the Gnostic heresy. Watch out for Neoplatonism. Do you think it's crass that when you eat delicious food and your heart is made happy that you're like, oh, I shouldn't be happy about this. It's just food. I'm just feeding here, right? Do you think it's crass when your child comes up and gives you a hug? Do you think like, oh, I shouldn't like this. This hug is like not as pure as the knowledge that they love me. Do you think it's crass when you experience ecstasy and acceptance and wholeness when you make love to your spouse? Now, you would never, you would never be like, okay, this is fine, but like what I really want is a pure spiritual connection with you. You would never do that. Why? Because your connection with other people through love or even experiences like eating food or enjoying a good show on TV is both intellectual and emotional and physical. Why would we expect our relationship with God to be less than that? We would expect it to be even more than that. God gives us the benefit of his body and blood in Holy Communion. In baptism, the Holy Spirit brings the benefits of Christ's baptism to all of us. Christ's baptism pulled out from 2,000 years ago and brought here to benefit you. The reason why you and I are baptized is because Jesus was baptized, and we are being united to him in baptism. What's the benefit? In Christ's baptism, the Spirit descends on him, and the Father announces that Jesus is his beloved Son. When you are baptized with the baptism of Christ, the same thing happens. The Father announces to you that because you are in Jesus Christ, you are his beloved daughter. You are his beloved son. That brings us, and I'm almost done here. This brings us to the last point. Go back up to verse one. This is the point of verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a daughter or son of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ gets the exact same thing that the Father announced to Jesus at the baptism. This announcement that you are his beloved son and daughter. Now, some of you are going to say, that doesn't have anything to do with baptism. It has everything to do with faith right here. It's the people who have faith that are the sons and daughters of God. But you're wrong. Look at this again. Look at verse 1 again. We're almost done. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. He is not saying that if you have faith in God, you're, that you have faith in Jesus, you're born of God. He's saying it the other way around. Look again. Believes is in the present tense. Whoever is believing right now that Jesus is the Christ has been, past tense, been born of God. The announcement that you are God's child, you're being born of God, happens at baptism. It happens when God the Father does the same thing he did to his son, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. That creates faith. And here's why I say this, and then I'll be done. Because, and this does not apply to all of you. Again, this past three weeks this has been very, very powerful for some of you. I know I've talked to you. For others of you, they'd be like, oh, this, that's interesting. First John's an interesting book. For some of you, this has been really powerful. And for those of you for whom it's been powerful, I want to say this one last thing. Some of you struggle with like, is my faith good enough? Like, do I believe enough to actually be a Christian? You're missing the point. You're imagining faith as something that you do so that you can finally be born of God. That God looks at your faith and says, okay, okay, you've got faith. You're born of me. But actually, in 1 John 5, 1, it's the other way around. You're born of God, and then he gives you faith. Do you have even the tiniest scrap of belief 
that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you know what this means? First John 5, 1. It means that you have been born of God. You are in. It's objective. It's grounded in historical reality. It's grounded in visceral, physical elements like water and bread and wine. I'm going to invite those of you who can to come to the rail with me in just a few minutes and experience this objective promise that God is for you, that Jesus' body, crucified and risen from the dead, belongs to you, and that your faith will flow out of that, your love for each other will flow out of that, but the rock-solid thing is that God has made this covenant commitment to you in his word, his word read, his word preached, his word in bread and wine, his word in water. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that we, thank you, God, for being such a good God, and I pray that you would show us your heart, show us your love for us, help us to not imagine that somehow your love for us is contingent upon what we can do, whether it's the faith that we can muster up or the, the, the love that we can somehow work up in ourselves for each other, but Father, show us again how objective and how real and how concrete your love in Jesus Christ is for us, that you've chosen us, you've called us your own that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, not to play some sort of game where now you've, we've got to like perform the right mental and emotional exercises to get that, but that you actually died for us to rescue us and that you make us these promises in your word and that you make us these, these promises in water and in bread and wine. Help us to believe in your objective love for us, Father. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I thank you uh, today uh, well, we, we thank you all the time for our mothers, uh, but today is a really appropriate day to thank you for the women that you placed in our lives who uh, carried, us, carried us around in their bodies for nine months and uh, gave birth to us, and for the women who uh, raised us and uh, gave us unconditional love when we had nothing to offer them except for uh, work and difficulty and stress. And Father, for the image the, the, the image of you that we've received from the unconditional love that our mothers have given us and how for many of us that's pointed us to you. And for those of us who have had relationships with our mothers that have struggled, how that also has pointed us to you who love us uh, uh, with the true and perfect love that the love of our mothers can only be a signpost to. Father, will you bless our mothers who are still with us? Uh, will you take care of our mothers and keep our mothers safe with you who have gone on before us? And uh, uh, for our mothers who are still with us, will you give them uh, joy and fulfillment in uh, the vocation that you've called them to of raising us and taking care of us? Lord, in your mercy. Father, I also pray on uh, this, our um, uh, Teachers Appreciation Week, for all the teachers that are in this church and for the ministry that they have, uh, the really important and difficult ministry that they have, uh, reaching out and teaching uh, kids, which is something that hardly any of us have the emotional capability or the intellectual capability to do. And we want to thank you this morning for raising up people who, do have, who have been gifted by you for this important task. We want to thank you for, especially for, for all teachers, but especially for our teachers this morning, for Katie and for Ruth, and for Shanna, and for Dave, and for Jen, and Jared, and Chrissy, and Susie, and for those who have been teachers and are now retired, and for those who are studying to be teachers. God, would you bless all of these and give them strength and hope and keep them safe in your kingdom. 
Lord, in your mercy. And finally, Father, we pray for all the requests that we have, for the things that our hearts are burdened with, the struggles that we're going through, whatever they might be. I want to pray especially this morning that you would be with the family of uh, Jim Claycomb, who is the pastor of the Presbyterian Church who meets here in the afternoon, whose son passed away suddenly uh, a week ago, and that you would give them hope and comfort, especially turn their mind to your son's resurrection and give them the hope and comfort that all of us need that can only come from knowing that Jesus died and then rose from the dead to make all things new, including our souls and our bodies someday. Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things, Father, because you are good enough and loving enough to call us along with your son, Jesus, your daughters and your sons, and have invited us into your throne room. And so we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you can, please confess with me the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
stand. Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Make sure you look around and find somebody that you don't recognize or somebody that you do recognize but you haven't talked to recently and experience God's love made perfect in Christian community. Go in peace.